thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So again, we are um, continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and uh, this is our sixth talk on this Feast of uh, St. Luke. We are tonight starting the study of the letters to the seven churches, which I have titled The Church Under Judgment. This is, this is a section that goes from chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 22. Those are the, first, the seven letters to the churches. What I plan to do is to cover those seven letters in two talks. Tonight, I'd like to spend some time dealing with the moral sense. This is uh, unusual because I tend to focus mostly on the literal sense, but uh, I think that there is much good that can be derived from studying this, uh, these letters from the moral sense. How does those letters apply to me and to our churches today? What is the Lord telling us? Because it will help us focus on Jesus Christ as he wishes to be known, not as we want to know him. And the next week, we'll go back to the literal sense and understand the historical context that these churches were living through when the letters were delivered to them. What were they facing? What the situations was? What is the meaning of some of the terms we see? And uh, cover this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this slowly. I'm going to read the seven letters because it's worth reading. It's scripture. So if you have... Um, the uh, Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, please follow with me, chapter 2. If you, if you don't, you can still follow your Bible and you may be able to note some of the differences. Otherwise, just listen. I'll read it slowly. And then we'll go and cover some of the... and try to understand what those letters are all about. Um, once more, I do um, strongly encourage you to take notes, even if you're just taking notes for yourself, because... The mere fact of taking notes will help you register more and better the gist of the talk. Remember that in the first chapter, we saw Jesus as he presented himself, and we understood the context to be one of judgment. We understand that this is a vision that St. John is receiving on the Lord's Day. 
And there's a purpose to it. And the purpose, as I have already mentioned to you, consists of the following. Jesus is revealing himself as being the king of all nations. And as a king, he has come to visit all those nations, including, specifically, his church. And what he does is at first he addresses himself to his church. One very important element that I'll point out to you right now, and I'll repeat it again, is that this is the only time in this whole vision where the Lord Jesus Christ is on earth. The vision is located when St. John turns and looks, Jesus is on earth. He's not up in heaven. We'll see that beginning in chapter 4, the door is open in heaven and St. John goes up. But after this point, he's on earth. This is unlike any of the visions that prophets of the Old Testament saw. They always saw the Lord up on high. When the Lord is done talking to the churches, he then transfers the vision back up on high. And then he's addressing the world. You need to understand this in terms of the New and the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, the church is heaven on earth. So sacramentally, there is really no difference between this place and heaven. It is heaven. So Jesus comes down and walks among his own. The only other time in Scripture where we see the Lord walking is in the garden, the Garden of Eden. So you need to understand the church as the new garden in which the Lord comes down and meets us face to face. That's why he's here. After those letters, the vision is transferred back up on heaven because now he's addressing the world. Those who are not in, under the new covenant who are still under the old. And we're back to the traditional vision where things are happening up above, with one exception. Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel had a vision of heaven, but they were not admitted. St. John is. So whereas they see it from below, St. John sees it from above. That's again, thanks to the new covenant. The door of heaven has been opened by Christ. Keep track of those distinctions because there are important markers in helping us to understand the structure of the book. Effectively, Jesus addresses his church, then he turns around, and in the first phase, he sends warning and chastisements to the world, and then in the second phase, he effectively judges the world. But across the entire process of judging the world, there is always chances for people to repent. St. John is insistent that God did this and God did that and God did this and that and the other and yet man hardened their heart didn't repent. God does it in phases for only one purpose. Repentance is thought. Conversion is thought. Okay? And we will see that as we walk through the book. But that's essentially the whole structure of the book all the way until the unveiling of the pride. And then the whole description changes. 
And there's a very good reason why it changes. And we'll address that later. But that's basically it. He, he's cleaning house within his church. He's cleaning house of the world. And then his bride is unveiled. So then John is commanded to write to those churches. And here's the, here are the letters. First to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The letter to Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw, you, to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Theatra. And to the angel of the church in Theatra, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, 
I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to, to the rest of you in Theatra, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay upon you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. He who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself has received power from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Three more to go. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the name of being alive and you are dead. Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep that and repent. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who conquers shall be, glad, shall be clad thus in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia and write, in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the church of Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not knowing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve it to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. 
So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven letters addressed to seven particular churches. As we shall see next time, those churches were on a postal route across the diocese of St. John. The letters obviously were not addressed to these churches only, but through them to all the church because of the famous number seven. The very first thing I think you all noticed is the peculiar structure of every single letter. They all have the same structure. The Lord will introduce himself. Then he will say something about the state of that church. And then he will say what he will do. Every letter repeats that structure. Given that those letters were all given to all churches, it isn't that the letter to Theatra were only given to Theatra and the letter to Ephesus was only going to Ephesus. All of them were to get the entire book. Why is it that the Lord doesn't just say in the beginning, this is who I am, and then go through the whole process of talking to every church, this is the situation you're in, this is what you should do, and then concludes by saying, that's what we'll do to those of you who keep my word, or something like that. Why is it that he repeats this structure? So you see, for instance, in Ephesus, it starts by saying the words of him who holds the seven stars. Then he tells them what he knows, what he has against them, and then he tells them what he's going to do. Then in Smyrna, the same thing. The words of the first and the last who died and come to life. Why does he repeat this across all seven letters? The answer lies precisely in the structure of a covenantal lawsuit. When one enters into a covenant with someone, when one enters into a covenant, there are really two parties, the weak party and the strong party. So this conquering king came and conquered the city. He's the strong party, and the city is the weak party. There is a covenant drawn between the two. And that covenant has a very peculiar and specific structure. I had mentioned this when we've covered the covenant, I'm going to mention it again. There are five sections in any of those covenants, in, in, in a sort of a covenantal structure. It's five. First, preamble. The preamble identifies the lordship of the great king, stressing, stressing both his transcendence, greatness and power, and his imminence, nearness and presence. So, hey, I'm not talking here only about the Bible. I'm talking about any covenantal document that Alexander the Great would have written with any city, or the Romans world with any. doesn't matter. This was part of the whole ancient world. This is how the documents were structured. First, they introduce the strong party, and they'll, they'll stress two things about them, about the strong party. They're strong, they're powerful, and they're everywhere. Transcendence and eminence. So do we see this preamble in those letters? Yeah. Every single one of them has it. Jesus introduces himself. In every single one of those, he will say, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, his strength and his presence. 
the second, Smyrna, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. So each of those letters start by this preamble where he's affirming his power. And so you can go back and check each letter. You will see that that's how it starts, with this preamble. The second part of this covenant is a historical prologue surveying the Lord's previous relationship to the vassal, especially emphasizing the blessings bestowed. And that's what he does. I know your works. I know what you have done. He starts by recalling what they have done. That's the historical prologue. And in each one of those letters, we have exactly that same structure repeating. You see it in Smyrna. I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the slander of those who say that you're Jews and are not. Okay. Uh, in case of Ephesus, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Each of the, the, the churches has this historical prologue brought up. The third one is ethical stipulation, expounding the vassal's obligation, his guide to citizenship in the covenant. Then he goes and tells them, that's what I want you to do. Ethically, this is what I expect you. Repent. I know your works. Hold to what you have. Each of the letters has this ethical stipulation. The fourth is the sanction. If you don't, I'll do this. And we saw it in almost all the letters. Not all of them have it. Has, have it. And there's a good reason for it. And finally, succession arrangements. Meaning, dealing with the continuity of the covenant relationship over future generations. And he does it. He who triumphs will receive this. He who conquers will get that. This is why those letters are structured this way. They are covenantal lawsuit. Now, let's recall what's so, so specific about the covenant. When you enter into covenant, the strong party is assuring you of blessings should you be faithful to the covenant. And if you're not faithful to the covenant, the strong party is also assuring you of curses. I'll bless you if you do this. I'll curse you if you do that. Now, some of you who have not heard those tapes on the covenant may be shocked to hear me say that God actually curse. Okay? And for those of you who did not hear those tapes, Michael is here, by the way. Michael, could you please stand up? He has those CDs I mentioned to you, and you may ask him for the copies of the CDs on the covenant where we cover this extensively. But I would recommend that you read Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. You'll understand what I mean. We're going to come back to those. They play a very important role in understanding the seven seals, the seven trumpets, those two chapters. Take a look at those. You'll understand what I mean. But that's the structure. That's exactly what's going on here. Many, many uh, theologians have recognized that this structure also governs the entire book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the law that Moses gave Israel and this is how it's structured. I'll give you the, 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 the covenantal lawsuit structure of the book of Deuteronomy. The preamble will take you from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 1, verse 5. The historical prologue will take you from chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 49. The ethical stipulations cover chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 26, verse 19. The sanctions cover chapter 27, verse 1, through 30, verse 20. And the succession arrangements, 
chapter 31, verse 1 to 34, 12. Let me repeat that. Preamble, 1, verse 1 through 5. Historical prologue, 1, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 49. Ethical stipulations, chapter 5, verse 1 through 26, 19. Sanctions, chapter 27, verse 1 through 30, 20. And succession arrangements, chapter 31, verse 1 to 34, 12. So it typically, in the ancient world, if a, va if, 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 uh, a vassal kingdom violated the terms of the covenant, the Lord would send messengers to the vassal, warning the offenders of coming judgment. We see that through the history of Israel, where the Lord will find prophets and send them to warn Israel of incoming judgment. Repent or else, this will happen to you. And... The, the prophet will remind Israel that if you don't repent, the curses that are part of the covenant to which you agreed will get triggered. So effectively, if you think about the prophets, they're prosecuting attorneys for God. That's their role. That's what they do. They're prosecuting Israel on God's behalf. It's a court. The difference is they don't get paid. Um, Hosea, the book of Hosea, follows the exact same thing. It's a covenantal lawsuit. Read Hosea. It's very short. It has 14 chapters. You can read it in an hour. And you will see the same exact pattern repeating. I'll give it to you. Preamble, chapter 1. The historical prologue, chapter 2 and 3. The ethical stipulations, 4 through 7. The sanctions, 8 and 9. Succession Arrangements, 10 through 14. Preamble, Chapter 1. Historical Prologue, 2 and 3. Ethical Stipulations, 4 through 7. Sanctions, 8 through 9. Succession Arrangements, 10 through 14. One of the fundamental reasons why people have a lot of problems with the book of Revelation, as with other parts of the Bible, is precisely in this mistaken notion that God doesn't curse. How could God curse? You know, isn't God this jolly old grandpa? And isn't Jesus all about love? It's impossible. So one of the problems we have is that we have a very mistaken understanding of who God is. Okay? We focus on love, 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 but we forget holy, holy, holy. Right? Scripture never says God is mercy, mercy, mercy. But it does say... He's holy, holy, holy. That's what we, the, the good thing about the book of Revelation is that it really orients us towards a proper relationship with God so we can worship Him in truth, which is very important. So now that we, we've, we've covered this part, let's see how this works. And there are some very interesting and revealing aspects of these lawsuits for each church. Let's start with Ephesus. The preamble is chapter 2, verse 1. The historical prologue, chapter 2, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 3. Ethical stipulations, verse 4. Sanctions, 5 and 6. Succession arrangements, 7. Very short, but it's there. Perfectly recognizable. Notice what he says to Ephesus. 
So first he introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each of the introduction is taken from the vision. He takes a very specific element of that vision and he applies it to the church as, need, as needs be. So he says to the church, I hold the seven stars, the spirits, and I walk among the lampstands. This notion of God walking in the garden, we'll see it here again. So this is my garden. This is the new Eden. You are it. One of the very important and driving force behind Eden when God created, remember, Eden, I don't have time to cover Genesis right now, but I'll, I'll point one thing to you, that most of us have a very mistaken reading of Genesis 1. Because our understanding is that God created the whole world, and then he created this very special area. There's more beautiful than the rest. But Scripture says no, no, nothing of the sort. The garden isn't more beautiful than the rest because God created the whole world good. But, but our understanding is that Eden is this, you know, extra place that God created. And the other misunderstanding we think is that, yeah, of course, this is the place where Adam sat and relaxed you know, and had, uh, had a daiquiri every evening and sat down and watched the sunset, you know, wearing his sombrero. And, and you know, what did God ask him to do? He got there, what did God do? Give him a shovel. Till and guard. Till and guard. That's Eden. That's the paradise. The whole earth is out there and it's all good. He takes a teeny weeny little piece, he puts that guy in, gives him a shovel. Till and guard. See how our understanding of it completely misconstrued? It carries over into the church. Because when the church is in New Eden, this place in this world, and we're in it, what do you think we have in our hands? Shovels. We're supposed to till and guard. All of us. But instead we have this kind of mistaken understanding. I'm supposed to come to the church to be served. The priest has to do all this stuff. I'm here to enjoy the show. And if the music is not right and the singers are not getting it right and the priest's sermon is too long or too boring or too this or too that, I get upset because it's Acapulco. Where's my daiquiri? We have to reorient the way we think about Eden because it carries over to the church. Let's go back to Ephesus. Ephesus must have carried a very, very important note to St. John because he was in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus. I know your works. First point. Anytime you have a discussion with some separated brothers and sisters of the Protestant faith and they tell you all we need is faith. Have you been hit with one of those? Right? Only by faith? Gently and charitably bring them over to Revelation and then open this book and start reading this chapter I read to you. 
almost without exception, the Lord says, I know your works. Doesn't mention faith anywhere. And then ask them to reflect on this. Just put the question to them. Don't try to convince them of anything. Let the Holy Spirit work His way in their hearts. But just point it out to them. Why is it that Jesus says, your works, your works, your works, your works, your works? Maybe Jesus didn't get that we only need faith. Point it to them and let them think about it. The best thing you can do to people sometimes is put before them a question and don't present the answer. Let them work through it. I know your works. Your toil, works and toil. Incidentally, toiling to toil brings us back to the garden. There's so many connections between this and Genesis. I can't cover them all. But that's what he has in mind. Your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Patient endurance. We're all called to patient endurance. You don't like your priest, he's too big, he's too small, he's too fat, he's too skinny, he stutters, doesn't know how to speak. Patient endurance. You go to Mass and this old lady who's saying the Mass with the priest and doesn't know when she's not supposed to talk. Patient endurance. Patient endurance with your community, with your parish. This is required. It's not even sufficient. Just required. And how you cannot bear evil, men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles. Tested those who call themselves apostles. We are required to be obedient to our priests and our bishops, provided that they are speaking the truth of the church. Which means that we cannot be obedient to our priests and our bishops if we don't know the truth. I'm talking about today. Right? We owe them obedience to the extent that they speak the truth. But if they are not speaking the truth, I am not, I'm not going to confront them or show disrespect to them, but I don't owe them obedience when they don't, don't speak the truth. You understand what I'm saying? If a priest is say, saying, you know, contraception, it's okay. You run. You run and you don't look back. If the bishop says, you know, there are situations where it's okay to vote for a political man who's advocating abortion because he has other important views. You run and you don't look back. That's your duty. You have to test. And incidentally, testing means what? What do you use to test? Your feelings? Oh, I don't know. This, what the priest said that doesn't really sit well with me going to give me an indigestion. I, it doesn't feel right. I'm, I'm, I'm not very happy right now. I'm in a bad mood but because of what I heard. Is that how you test? What do you use to test? The intellect. That means you have to form your intellect to be able to test appropriately. And the other thing I'll tell you, which is one of my pet peeves, many of us, one of our sly temptation is to be popes. I call those mini-popes. They want to be popes over the whole church. They just want to be popes over 
certain little things that happened to them. I had a dream. And in the dream, the Blessed Virgin Mary told me this. And then off we go. Mini Pope decided, without testing the Spirit, that the Blessed Virgin Mary, all right, another wonderful way in which we're mini Popes, every time somebody dies, we canonize that person in heaven. Automatically. And what do you hear? Oh, well, he was such a good person. It's scary. Especially for the person who died. If they're in purgatory, these people just give up on them. They're in heaven. You're going to pray for somebody in heaven. Actually, you're going to pray and ask them to pray for you, right? They're in heaven. Everybody's in heaven. You've heard me say this many times. It's a lot easier to get to heaven than to get into Harvard. Now, Harvard, that's hard. Not everybody can get into Harvard. But heaven, of course, everybody. It's automatic. It's automatic. You die, you got one-way ticket, you're going straight to heaven. Why? Because you're a good person. Many popes. Many popes. The spirit of obedience of the church is so important. Because that's what keeps us in the truth. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You have not grown weary. So these are folks who have shown some virtue, temperance, fortitude, patience. So you think, whoa, they got it. I mean, compare them to us. Generally speaking, Catholics in the United States, we don't even get close to this. So you think, wow, they have it made. But I have this against you. Here's your assignment tonight. When you go home, you're going to spend 15 minutes in prayer and simply ask the Lord this, Lord, what do you have against me? Because I tell you, you're much better off knowing what he has against you right now than when you face him in your personal judgment and hear him say, but I have this against you. This is the Lord talking. I'm not making this up, okay? This is scripture. You know the image of Jesus, the hippie with a guitar in his back, wanting to sing Kumbaya and have a group hug on the beach? Get rid of it. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So what, are, what is the problem with these people? They follow the rule. They do. They go by the book. They're what I call Pharisaic Catholics. They follow the rule. They checkmark everything. They do everything according to the book. They have abandoned the love they had at first. So they're holding very well to the theology. They're doing really well in the morality. They've abandoned the love. Can't do that. So if you find yourself being the mumbling, grumbling kind, you know, where you mumble and grumble about the priest and about this and about that and the other, and you're just mumbling and grumbling, read this again. Read this again. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. One of the things that the devil, that the demons are really good at, at doing to get us to hell, they don't have to stuff our minds with ideas. All they got to do is take ideas away from us. Make us forget. You know when you go to church last Sunday? You've been to church, right? You remember the sermon? How many of you remember distinctly the sermon? What was taught and what was said? How many? Raise your hand. 
three, four, that's good. Five, that's a good ratio. Don't blame yourself too much. You're not contending only with yourself. You're contending with the spirit of the world who's working actively to make you forget what that sermon was all about. Don't think that your memory is all your own and you forget because you forget. Someone is working actively to make you forget. So I do recommend that next Sunday when you go to Mass, be aware of this. Either take a notebook with you or work very actively during the, the Mass to listen intently as you've got an angel to help you because you're in a battle. Otherwise, 10 minutes as you step outside that church, you forgot. That's all he has to do. He strips away the truth and it's enough. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What does it mean to remove the lampstand? You'll be in darkness. Very good point. Yes? Exactly. Removing the whole church. Because he said earlier, what is the lampstand? The church. When he removes the lampstand, what did he remove? The whole parish is gone. You understand? Christ has no qualm removing parishes. He'll make it disappear. It'll go away. Don't ever think that a church gets destroyed anywhere out there in the world without his permission. Either because it was not teaching the truth or because he wants to punish the area in which that church was. And he punishes that area by extending darkness because as you just said, when the church is removed, darkness falls on the place. That's the worst kind of God's wrath is to let his church be persecuted and removed from one area. Why? Because salvation cannot be extended to the people in that area. That's the worst kind of punishment. You understand? Smyrna. I'll cover this business of Nicolaitans next week. I'll go back and cover that. But right now, I just want to move through those, some of those areas. Now, Smyrna. You, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Remember that Satan doesn't necessarily mean the devil. Satan means the opponent, someone who is causing an obstacle. Remember when he told Peter? Right? Get, get thee by me, Satan. He called him Satan. He didn't mean that Peter became Satan, as in the devil. But just anyone who opposes him is called that. Alright? In this specific instance, that's what it means. We will, we, will, we will go back and cover why he's saying that. That's going to play a very important role in understanding the rest of the book. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Notice, he doesn't say, don't worry, I'll make sure you don't suffer. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. How do you know if you're growing in your faith? It's your relationship to suffering. Your relationship to suffering has a lot to say about where your faith is. Do you fear suffering or not? If you're fearing suffering, it is presumably because you're taking it all on your own. You don't depend on him. You don't have that close relationship with him that can help you shoulder the suffering. If you don't fear suffering, you're really close to his heart. That's a very good metric. 
your relationship to suffering. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So some are thrown into prison for what reason? That you may be tested. Why do they need to be tested? Why do they need to be tested? For a very simple reason. So that their merit may increase. Therefore their glory will increase. That's why. He doesn't take that away from them. He doesn't say, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to prevent that to happen to you. He doesn't say any of this. Again, please, correct your view of the church. Don't ever expect the Catholic church to be comfortable. If you are in a church where people are comfortable, be afraid. Be very afraid. Something is terribly wrong. If you're in a church where you're struggling and everybody's not doing it right and things are not the way they're supposed to be and you, it's a struggle, rejoice. That's how it's supposed to be. Can't be any other way. For ten days you will have tribulation. Next week I'll cover why ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. He knows what they're about to suffer. He's telling them ahead of time, be faithful unto death. And that's one thing I want to point out to you. This departs from the traditional structure of a covenant lawsuit. In a covenant lawsuit, all you get is, this is what you've done, this is what you must do, fix yourself. You don't get prophecy. You don't get additional truth revealed. That happens only when you're friends of Christ. Then he goes beyond that traditional lawsuit, and he gives you insight into what is about to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? As you grow in your friendship with Christ, the Holy Spirit will give you insight beyond what is absolutely and strictly needed, because he can bestow his graces upon you, knowing that it will not be lost. That is very important. That's critical. This ch there are two churches who they are told what is going to happen soon. And in both cases, those churches have no reproof. He has nothing bad to say to them. And both churches are poor. Materially poor. Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is for next week. You hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness. But I have a few things against you. You have some that hold the teaching of Balaam. Balaam was the Old Testament prophet who Balak, who was against Israel, wanted to use to curse them. And every time he brought Balaam and wanted Balaam to curse them, Balaam blessed Israel because he couldn't do anything else. But then Balaam told Balak, all you've got to do is send your woman to seduce the Israel Israelites and get them to essentially take part into this orgy for your God and it's over. Meaning, I can't theologically do anything to you, but morally you can do whatever. You understand? It's on the morality side of it that they got attacked and successfully so. And because of this, God condemned them to spend 40 years in the desert until every single man of that generation would die there. That's what happened. So there in that church, they have the same situation. Someone in the church is saying, 
it's okay, you guys. We live among those pagans, and we have business with them. And some of those pagans requires us to sacrifice or eat meat that was sacrificed to their idols. Well, God certainly doesn't want his church to be closed. So in those circumstances, it's okay to do it. You can't. You can never, never say that it's okay to do something evil so that something good may come out of it. Never. You can't compromise the truth. You can't compromise the morality. You can't say, oh, contraception is okay in those situations. Abortion is okay in those situations. You can't do that. As Cardinal Chaput put it, Archbishop Chaput, sorry, you can't be 80% married. You're married or you're not. You can't be 80% Christian. You're Christian or you're not. That's how it goes. And so, this is what he says then. Repent then, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And that means judgment. The sword of his mouth is the word spoken by Christ and his word will not be too. In Theatra, we are reminded again of your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your later works exceed the first. Boy, those people are really doing something great. Notice, your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. What more can you have? What more can you have? Looks like they have it all. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my service to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So most of the community is doing those things. They're, they have works, they have love, they have faith, they have patient endurance, and they're closing their eyes. On this one particular woman, remember Jezebel was a queen who came from um, Phoenicia to Israel, got married to a king, and then got him to worship Baal. And it is against her and her priests that Isaiah came up and did the test. Remember that test? Where he told his, her priest, the priest of Baal, go ahead. You put your sacrifice on your altar. I'll put my sacrifice on mine. You go call on Baal and get him to light up the sacrifice. And I'll call on my God. And they went around and then cut themselves because they would bleed themselves and did all the stuff and nothing happened. And he was laughing. And then he said to them, all right, throw water on the altar. More, more. He threw so much water, it was completely soaked. And then he knelt and he prayed. And then heaven, fire came down from heaven, not only consumed the sacrifice, consumed the entire altar. And what did Isaiah do? He stood up and said, you see, that's our true God. And then he proceeded to kill all 13 of them with his sword. That's the woman Jezebel we're talking about. So they tolerate her. Here again, another church faced with Roman worship, and she's saying, it's okay. You, you can do that. You can, you can sacrifice to those idols from time to time if you have to for your work. God will understand. God is love. You know, just give to the poor and do your, your good things, your good deeds, and God will understand. He loves everybody. 
You've never heard that, of course. Notice, I have given her time to repent, but she didn't. So I will throw her on a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent. And I will strike her children dead. I will strike her children dead. I think this is one of the greatest dissonance that people have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because typically, you know, he's like a bear. He's cute and cuddly. I will strike her children dead. People wonder why people have cancer and AIDS and a bunch of other wonderful things like that. Do you think it has anything to do with the Lord? Or he's completely absent of it. He's just sitting back there and he's just watching. From time to time he comes and he just, you know, stir the pot and it takes another 10,000, I mean, a thousand year break. Is that how he is? No. There is a direct relationship between sin and sickness. Does it explain all sickness? Of course not. He himself said it in St. Luke. It doesn't. But there is a relationship. That cannot be denied either. Can't be denied. You want to protect your kids? Go to confession. Regularly. Because your sins affect their lives. Spiritually and psychologically. Go to confession regularly. If you care for your children, go to confession. I should make that a motto, you know? Trademark that. Huh. Give me some ideas. All right. Theatra. Oh, yeah, we just covered that. All right, Sardis. Again, I know your works. You have the name of being alive, and you are dead. Why do you think they have the name of being alive? Because they probably have lots of social activities. They're probably very engaged in the community, and they do a whole bunch of stuff. But they're dead. See, notice the word. I mean, the Lord doesn't mince his words. There's no, there's no fluff in what he says. There is no. I understand your situation, you poor you. You know, you're you're. You've been conditioned by your environment. You, know, you didn't have good teachers when you grew up. You, you, none of that. He holds us responsible. Because all graces are given us for what we need to do. Remember then what you received and heard. Again, the remembrance. That's why it's so important for us to have this, this discipline about our spiritual life. If we're not studying scripture regularly, if we're not meditating on the word of God, if we're not refreshing our memory constantly about our own sins, our failings, our weaknesses, about the graces of God, his love, his mercy, constantly, day after day after day, very, very easy for us to forget. And then things slip away. That's it. Doesn't take much. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, he knows the case of everyone in the church. And that's, keep that picture of the church in mind, because this is very real. This, the church on earth, is heaven on earth that's too sacramentally. But there's another part of it. You've got saints, you've got sinners. You've got Peters, you've got Judas. Judas is, or Peter's, with an S. 
You got all that mixed in here. Some people sitting right now here in this Bible study, you're going to meet back in heaven. Others, you may not. I know we don't typically think of people we meet as heavenly companions. But that's how we have, we have to think. That's what we have to think. That's the proper outlook on people. Bound for heaven. Hopefully. <laughs> and God help us. <laughs> that is a very important point we have to make. The church is not a place where we go for perfection and orderliness and kindness and gentleness and meekness and mercy and all that good stuff. No. No. It's a battleground. You've got some people who belong here and some who don't. And they're all mixed up. And we can't tell who's who. Don't ever fall into this temptation thinking, oh, that person is going to hell. Boy, you never know who's going to be the thief on the cross. Right? I mean, what a shortcut he took. Think about it. He was going the other way. He was right at the gates of hell. And in the span of three hours, he was the first canonized saint. Ahead of everybody. Think about that. I'm sure he had a shock of his life. It took him probably, it's probably taken him two, maybe 3,000 years. He probably not gotten off over it. He's probably going in heaven saying, I was the first. I was the first. I was the first. He's been at it for 2,000 years. He doesn't have 5,000 years before he come down. I mean, think about it. He was supposed to be the last. He's actually supposed to be in hell. What did he say? We deserve what we got. That's what he said, didn't he? Right? Which, by the way, is the foundation of the Catholic Church teachings about um, the death penalty. That's why the Church supports the death penalty. It's in Scripture. We deserve what we got. We deserve to be put to death. That's what he said. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay? You don't believe me? Go argue with the Holy Spirit. So, the point I'm trying to make to you is that the Lord knows where we are. The question is, do we? Do we know where we are? Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world. The other church is the exact opposite. They're going to be tested. They are going to be kept from the hour of trial. He loves both equally. But different circumstances demand different approach. But I want to point something out to you which is very important here. So I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. That is the summary of what we're going to see in chapter 4 and following. Right there. We've been told what he's going to do soon. So we should take it as a guide. I am coming soon. Right? I'm coming soon. Not in 3,000 years or 2,000 years 
when there's America and communist Russia and all those people who are, uh, you know, taken up and those who are left behind and... I'm coming soon. That means there's an urgency to it. Okay. Hold fast what you have so no one may seize your crown. Again, notice, we can't forget and we can't let go for we, we've been given. It's, do, do you sense that notion that it's like you're on a treadmill and you, you have to keep on walking or running or as you fall? That's the faith. You're on a treadmill. You're walking, you're running, and if you don't, you fall. There's nothing in between. So you have to have a very practical plan for your faith. When do you pray in the morning? What do you pray? Do you say the rosary? How often? When do you go to confession? Do you leave it to a whim? Oh, you know what? I haven't been to confession in... Hmm. I don't remember. Maybe I should go. Yeah. Six months later. I haven't gone to confession in... I don't remember. Maybe I should go. Don't be like that. You can't leave your faith to whim, to chance. Are you studying scripture regularly? Are you understanding what the church teaches regularly? You need all this to make it. Not to become a kind of nice saint, to make it to heaven. You need all this. That's the importance of the faith. You've got to keep it. You have to hold to it. Or else, your crown is taken away. And finally, Laodicea. And to the Church of Laodicea, right. I mean, I could replace Laodicea by the Church of America, right? Listen to this. You say, I am rich. I have prospered. The church in America is the richest church in the history of the Catholic Church. In the entire history of the Catholic Church, there hasn't been a church as rich and opulent as the church in America. There hasn't been a church with Catholics that are as educated as the one in America. We top all the other churches, all the history of the church, across the entire time frame since Christ till today, there hasn't been a church like ours. So, we're rich, we have prospered, we need nothing. I mean, we think we need a lot of things, but we really need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what Mother Teresa said when she came over here. She said, the poverty in India is physical poverty. But the poverty in the United States is much worse because it's spiritual. And then here's another line that is very important for the entire book. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and chase them. Those whom I love, I reprove and chase them. So be zealous and repent. You need zeal in the faith. You can't be, oh well, okay, I'm going to the church. I'm going to them. All right, now I'm going to the church. Let me go be a pagan for the whole week. <laughs> Shall I go back to the church next week? Um, dum, da, dum. And of course, I'm a good guy, so I'm going to heaven. You know, goes without saying. Now, those other 20 idiots driving around me on the highway, because I don't know how to drive, they're all going to hell, but I'm going to heaven. Humpty Dumpty, dum, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum. 
Where do you fit in this list here, if that's your attitude? can't have that. You have to be zealous. What does that mean to be zealous? I'll tell you. It means that when you're with your friends, what's on your mind is God. What you really take pleasure in talking about is God. You're always searching for different ways to increase your knowledge and your love of God. That's how you know if you have zeal or not. If what you're really interested about when you wake up, you know, you know how sometimes you have a conversation, you have somebody standing like this, he's kind of listening, and his eyes are blinking, like an owl. <laughs> and then somebody says something, a keyword, like sports. And it, it's like the engine just starts to rev. And the nuclear reactor is waking up. And three minutes after that, he's just blasting out 400,000 words a second. He can get him to stop. Now he's got zeal on sports. Last time I checked, it wasn't a football field in heaven. Or, you know, you have somebody sitting there, and then he's jerking his leg nervously, right? You know, and you're starting to have your, you're, you're getting a headache. And then this person suddenly start, you know, start talking about someone else, right? And then all ears perk up. And the person gets in the conversation. And that person has a lot to say about this other person. Now this person has, this person has zeal in gossiping. Where's your area of interest? What are you passionate about? Is it broccoli? Is it chocolate? Is it the stock market? Don't get me wrong, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with being interested by a bunch of stuff. Where is your center? What makes you tick? If it isn't the faith, no zeal there. You've got to work on it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That is the door of your heart. That is the door of your home. He, if anyone hears my voice, hears my voice. So what do we have to do? We have to hear his voice. How do we hear his voice? We put on Metallica. Full blast. We're going to hear the voice of the Lord. Right? Or we make sure that we have three cell phones and we're conducting three conversations at the same time because we want to hear the voice of the Lord. Or we can never turn off the music or the TV. Huh. How do you hear the voice of the Lord? Jeremiah was the one who wanted to hear the voice of the Lord. And he listened to it. For the thunder, it wasn't there. He listened to it in a... And everything that was loud, and the voice of the Lord was not there. Where was it? In the breeze. Can you hear the breeze? I'm talking very practically here. If you're a house, you can't hear the breeze because of all the noise you have in your house. Chances are, you can't hear his voice. So when you come knocking, guess what? No one will open. That's why you hear me being so insistent in recommending that you spend at least 15 minutes of your day, either in the morning or at night when it's very quiet, in prayer, where you sit before the Lord and you don't talk. 
It isn't about telling him about the 422,000 petition you have for him. And please, Lord, don't forget my Lamborghini. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just being, I am here to hear your voice. Read scripture, say the glory be, say the Our Father slowly. Stop on every word, stop on every word, listen, listen to hear his voice. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. When you read this, normal reaction should go tilt, reset, reboot. Let me read it to you again. I want you to pay attention. He who conquers, he who conquers, what is his reward? I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you see yourself sitting on a throne? I don't. You see the tilt? Lord, that's very nice, but I don't want to sit on a throne. There is a disproportion in the reward that is absolutely incredible. You think he will conquer, I'll, you know, I'll sit with him and we will have lunch together every day. That'd be cool. Or he who conquer will be with me in heaven forever. That'd be very cool. Sit on a throne. Whoa. The notion here is that this is disproportionate. Re reward awaiting people who conquer. War, conquer. You make the connection. Spiritual battle, conquer. You're in a battle. You win or you lose. Those are your two choices. And it's for death. Another choice. That's what St. Teresa of Avila used to say. To die is fine, but to be defeated, never. Never. That's the war cry. You can't be defeated in this war. You have to conquer. And the rewards are beyond imagination. We can't even begin to imagine what it is like. So when you see your pain that nobody knows about, when you think about the frustration you have, your disappointments, the things you wanted to do, never got to do, the fact that people may not appreciate you the way you want them to, be, to, to appreciate you, the fact that people may not see you the way you see yourself, Rejoice. Because it's the Lord who's keeping all that for you. That's a good thing. It's not bad at all. Because otherwise, you got your reward here. Not up there. So cherish those things. Learn to cherish them. To think, he's seeing, he knows, that's enough for me. So, in summary, those letters tell us the following. Theological truth is essential. We have to know the truth. We have to hold to what we have received. We have to test the spirit. We can't be lax. We can't just believe whatever somebody says. We have to believe what the church teaches because the church holds the truth, all the truth, nothing but the truth. We must worship in truth. It is not enough to worship. Number two, moral conduct is essential. It flows from truth and must correspond to it. If I know truth, I have to act truthfully. 
Otherwise, I'm a lie. That's how it goes. Number three, faith alone is not enough. Work is critical. Number four, those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. So be zealous and repent. The necessity of a good examination of conscience. You have to examine your conscience regularly. Lord, what do you have against me today? Help me make a good examination of conscience. The other thing I would point out to you is that what about those whom he doesn't love? Those whom he hates? He doesn't reprove and he doesn't chasten. So what do they look like? They look like they got it all. He doesn't reprove. He doesn't chasten. They look like they got it all. The, the, the greatest wrath of God is to let someone be very successful in his life. He has it all. He's got it all. Health, wealth, a beautiful wife, kids, family, position, money. He's got it all. And he is convinced, I don't need God. That is the extreme expression of God's wrath. Because that person is going straight to hell by rejecting God. That's simple. So if you feel that you're falling and fumbling and then you can't say your rosary, right? you're distracted, it's hard to say your rosary, you sit to pray, you can't pray, and you come to church and you really want to pray to church and it's not working for you, and things are not working in your, in your life, your car is broken and the bathroom is not working, and those I love, I chasten. The spiritual life is a spiritual combat requiring us to conquer. The enemy is Satan. I did not say anything about Satan right now because I'm going to cover it next week. But you know the number of times he said it? The devil, Satan. The Lord blesses and curses. Tribulation are willed by the Lord. He wills tribulation, as we saw in the case of the man who committed adultery. I will put them in great tribulation. It's his will. Not something he allows and he just sits down and says, Oops, I'm sorry. There was a bug in my program when I created the world. I'm going to have to you know, send it to Q&A. No, it's willed. Everything is under his control. I will come in to him and eat with him and him with me. That is the Eucharist. You have to have a worthy reception of the Eucharist. Examine your conscience. Make sure you have no moral sin on your soul. If you do, go to confession. Hopefully you don't. And when you come to the church, be there so you can give yourself to the Lord that he may give himself back to you. That is the proper way of celebrating the Eucharist. This is how those seven letters are structured to help us. They can form a very good basis for meditation in our own life. And help us grow in sanctity and see what are the areas I have to, we have to work on. So again, I really recommend that tonight you go and you spend time looking at your own life and putting yourself in the presence of the Lord and saying, Lord, speak. I am, I am here to listen to your voice. And may God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.